slash and cast. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with stage and screen actor Andy Umberger about theater, breaking into the business, Buffy, DeHoffrin, method acting on set, and more. As always, thanks for listening. You can find us on all your social media platforms by searching Monsters, Madness, and Magic. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) Why don't you take us back in time to when you were a youngster? Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Mm, no, I wasn't a book reader. I was a fort builder. I remember what some of my friends we did. We built a fort out behind a 7-Eleven in this area of woods. I guess we were probably, I don't know, like 9 or 10, 11, something like that. And I remember my dad said, we were going to spend the night. There was about four of us. We were going to spend the night out in the fort. And my dad said, all right, there's not going to be like no smoking, no drinking, nothing crazy out there, right? So it's like 10, 30, 10 o'clock, 10, 30 at night. We're out there pitch dark we would have been scared to death to walk through the you know woods by ourselves and all of a sudden the hatch to the fort lifts up and we're like what what the hell and it's my dad (laughs) and he's looking in and he's saying i'm just checking up on you and i was so impressed that my dad found he had never been there he had never been you know in that section of woods and he just went back there in the pitch of night and looked for us. And I was like, I was impressed by that. Because as a kid, I would have been scared shitless to do that. Like, no way I was going to do that. Anyway, yeah, I was a fort builder, a little bit of a troublemaker. Yeah, I was not a great student. And then by the time I got into early high school, I was kind of a pothead. And it was just, I was not headed really for anything good. It was a teacher who eventually kind of straightened me out, you know. Coaches, which is not strange that happens a lot to a lot of people you know right when you were building these forts was this in la as well no no i grew up in portsmouth virginia norfolk portsmouth virginia beach that area down on the chesapeake bay and the ocean yeah deep woods then is it safe to say you were also the class clown yeah a little bit a little bit yeah i was kind of a cut up not you know not to an extreme but you know was acting out a little bit so what sort of things were you consuming creatively like what movies did you like what kind of tv shows did you grow up on oh well a whole variety of things i i can always remember sitting down on sunday nights and watch the fbi with Ephraim zimbalist jr you know and like in high school when i was old enough to really sort of appreciate stuff i remember watching mash regularly Mm -hmm. and and then when I got into college in the in the late 70s, I just didn't I didn't watch television. I did like I just saw the Norman Lear's 100th birthday and I did watch, you know, All in the Family and mm-hmm. Good Times and a lot of his shows. But as I got in in the late 70s, there was just no time for television because the schedule was crazy. And then in the 80s, started I started watching the I remember 30-something was one of my favorite shows. And, and of course, I always got into the, the, the classics later as sitcoms, you know, Seinfeld, Friends, all of that. So where, where does your personal interest in the arts arise? When do you start to fiddle around with acting? Were you a theater kid? 
It was a teacher who, who kind of straightened me out. I had always been, I guess in starting in junior high, I got into chorus classes in school. And one of the reasons I did it, because I was like, how hard can this be, right? You know, <laughs> didn't really want to apply myself. And it turns out that I had a decent voice and so I could sing. And I was like, yeah, all right, we'll keep doing this. And then in high school, the teacher I really sort of affected my life, she was an English teacher and, and head of the drama department. And of course, they always had to do a, a musical. And because I was in chorus, we auditioned for the musical and I did that. And she was the one who said, you know, I think there's something here. I think maybe you should look into this. She was the one who sort of steered me that way. Yeah. Do you remember your very first time on stage? I do, and I can't tell you what it was. It was in elementary school. Oh. We did we did some play. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was an original piece. I can't remember. All I know is my sister, who's three years older than me, I borrowed her. She had a, a school jacket, and I had to borrow that and wear it in the play. And I, I can't, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you what the piece is, but I do have a memory of saying, hey, this is kind of fun. I like this. How far along acting did you realize that you could pursue it as a career or want to i never really thought about that until met this teacher um, mary Jo brady was her name and and i met her in my senior year in high school and i had done with the the choral groups i had done other like musicals but i never really thought of it as a as a career choice and I was headed for a life of, I don't want to say manual labor, but, you know, a craftsman's job, you know, I was going to, and my, and my parents didn't really, my parents didn't really care what I did as long as I was happy doing it, you know. And she was the one who sort of said, I, I think you could do this. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to get in a decent college because, you know, I'm just not smart enough. And she was like, yes, you are. She's, and I'll never forget this. She said, here at the school, in high school, they treat you like a child, so you act like a child. She said, choose to act like an adult. And I was like, oh. And it's the first time a teacher really spoke to me that way. And she said, here's what you're going to do. My grades were not good enough to get into decent schools. She said, you have this music background. Go to a community college where they have a music program. Apply yourself. Get your grades up. Then you'll transfer to a, a school with a decent theater program. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Now, when it comes to stage, does your approach as an actor differ to a character if you're on stage as opposed to screen? That's an interesting question. And I always say that it's vastly different, yet remarkably the same. And it's really different in the technical aspect. For me, the approach of how I approach the character is uh, is always the same. But uh, film is a director's medium, whereas stage is an actor's medium. Mm -hmm. And the film, everything is just brought down. And so you have to be focused and you're dealing with different eye lines and it's it's a different sort of focused, concentrated energy. Where on stage, you gotta fill, maybe it's a thousand seat house, you gotta fill that house. So it's a completely different type of energy. That's the big difference. But really for me, the the, the, the process is the same. Method acting is a term we hear get thrown out a lot. What does that term mean to you? I love I love what Christopher Plummer, he you know, he recently passed and I love what he said about method. He said acting is about imagination. Method should only be used when imagination fails. And I heard a story about not to I don't want to say anything bad about someone like Benedict Cumberbatch, who I I love his work. I mean, he's phenomenal. But in the Power of the Dog, the latest movie he was nominated for. Uh, he, I saw him do an interview and he was talking about he didn't bathe for a week because that's what the character the character would have done on the trail. And, and he exposed to his other castmates to that. And I thought, okay, here's the deal. You want to do that as an actor in the rehearsal process or on your own time to experience that, to get that sense memory of what it's like not to bathe for a week? Okay, do it. But when you're on set, it's not real. 
you're not really that person. You don't have to do that. Now you ha now you know what it feels like, so you can act. You don't have to expose those other people to that. It's the that's why I love what Christopher Plummer said. I think it's always great as if you can't draw on any type of sense memory and you need to experiment with something in the rehearsal process or in your preparation, absolutely go ahead. But when it comes to doing it when you're there on set, I have trouble with that because I did a production of Henry IV, part one, in an outdoor theater and we were using broadswords and shields. And I'm like, I don't want to. I don't want to be working with a method actor when we're swinging a broadsword <laughs> or whatever. This is choreography, and you have to understand that. That's kind of where I am on that. Right. And don't have to name names or anything, but have you ever worked with someone that uses that and is a little bit too into it for your taste? You know what? No one really comes to mind. Mm, I know if I really, really thought about it, I could probably come up with somebody. But off the top of my head, no. I've never been. I've never been in a situation where I thought this is going to go too far. You know, I've always felt comfortable with, with anybody that, you know, I'm on, I'm on stage with. I mean, I, there, I mean, sometimes I know actors have uh, trouble retaining stuff. And so, you know, you go out there and you're like, hmm, it, it could be an interesting night. I might have to cover <laughs> for somebody. But, but I've never felt really sort of unsafe about somebody's going to cross a line because they're so, they're so into the role. So you went from having this teacher having to talk you into acting and not thinking you're good enough to eventually making it on Broadway. It's tricky. It was a, well, it was a long process. Um, and I, uh, after I graduated from college, I had thought about it for a long time. And I, I loved theater. And that's my passion. It still is. I love being on stage. But I had always, there were, there were movies that I saw and just saw performances that were, I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. And I, I thought I could be sort of that. When I was younger, I had a full head of hair. I was sort of the young leading man as I, excuse me, as I started getting a little older, I started losing my hair. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to be that young leading man, but I could be that character guy. There's so much work and I can. And so I thought to myself, yeah, you know what? I want to, I want to go to LA, but I didn't know anything about LA. And the book back then, one of the books, sort of the book du jour was Acting Professionally by Robert Cohen. And he wrote back then, he said, you know, make a choice. If you want to do theater, go to New York. If you want to do film and television, go to L.A. Don't go one place or the other and try to build up a resume and go because they're not interchangeable. So I thought, oh, well, I want to do film and television. I should go to L.A. And then I was getting ready to pull the trigger and I was like, what am I doing? I'm going to moving 3,000 miles from home. I don't know anybody out there, whatever. I met an actor who said, that book is a little out of date. Your training's in theater. You can go to New York, work in theater, and there's film and television work there. And you can build that up and then go to L.A. That was my plan. And so I left uh, Richmond, Virginia, where I went to school, was in uh, D.C. for a year, then went to New York. And that was the plan to build up a theater resume and then maybe get some film and television work. And that didn't really work out that way. I mean, uh, you know, there, there was theater work and uh, I continued to do that and regional theaters and stock theaters. And then eventually, you know, Broadway came around and that's what we all worked towards. Now, did you notice any of those differences that that book talked about when you eventually moved to L.A., the differences between New York and L.A. for an actor? No. And actually, a pleasant surprise when I got out here, I didn't know anybody eventually when I moved in 97, I didn't know anybody out here. And my agent actually, uh, my agency was still in New York and they were actually submitting me from New York with very limited success. And shortly after that, my agency opened an office in LA. But what I did was I did some of these, they no longer exist. They were sort of controversial. Uh, these cold reading workshops where you go in and you pay to take a class and a casting director conducts it and they give you material. And I don't want to say audition for them. You do a scene and they can tell you, they can give you a adjustment, direction or whatever and tell you, uh, give you sort of a, a critique. And it's a great way to get in front of these casting directors. And what I found out, what the pleasant surprise was, is that a lot of casting 
casting director said, if I look at someone who's new, who I haven't seen, and I look at their resume, and I see they don't have many on-camera credits, but I see a lot of theater credits, that tells me they're well-trained. And that's somebody I'm gonna um, I'm gonna look at. So I was very pleasantly surprised by that, and it it did serve me well. A lot of those casting directors gave me a shot in the early stages. Yeah. So just personally, what were some of your favorite roles that you played during your early years on stage and in Broadway? Oh well, on Broadway, uh, I did. I was in City of Angels, and I played sort of ensemble roles, and I covered, and I did that in Passion too. But Passion, I have to say, was it was one of those shows where Sondheim's work is just it's just incredible because it, um, I replaced a guy named John Leslie Wolf. He he opened the show originally. He left, and I came in and replaced him. There was a, a moment in the show where I, I had an entrance, and right before I had to go on, the late Marin Maisie would come off, and I would help her off of uh, this platform and then I would go on but while I was waiting in the wings the orchestra would be playing and there was a certain passage and it was almost like every night I would hear something else in the orchestrations like I would hear I never heard the strings do that my god I never heard the clarinet do that it was something it was it, it was magical to to do that Sondheim piece and to hear it every night you know and and I, I didn't do that much in the show once again it was kind of an ensemble role and but it still it was it was a pleasure it really was a great pleasure to do that so you said you're still active in theater what have you worked on recently in terms of the stage right. in 2019 I got the chance to do a production of uh, 1776 at La Mirada Theater for the Arts and I got to work with my wife so that was oh. that was huge and we met in the theater years ago in recent years we haven't had the opportunity to work together at all or or very very seldom so we got their opportunity to do that and that was fantastic yeah that was great Anthony, how eventually did the transition from stage to screen happen for you, that first opportunity? Well, I had done a couple of things in New York. Back when I was in New York, there's a lot more production in New York now. But back then, there was really Law & Order, maybe one other show, a couple other shows, I can't remember, and then uh, some soaps. Uh, I think I did All My Children, Small Role in All My Children, and Small Role in Another World. I did a couple episodes of Law & Order over the years. I was like, I got to go. I want to go. And I, I, I never forget this. It was, I think it was 91. I went into my agent's office and I said, thinking about going to LA. And my agent said, ooh, you're, you're going to die in LA. I was like, what? He said, yeah, it's, it's a huge town. You're just going to get swallowed up. You can go, but I don't think it's a good idea. And he kind of scared me. I said, all right, I'll, st- you know, I'll stick it out. And, and I did. And I, and I started working more in theater and it was good. And then I did a production at the Old Globe in San Diego in 96. I came out here and spent a little time. Well, San Diego is not LA, but I, got, I spent a little time in LA. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this. I want to do this. And I came back and I, I remember in late 96, I said to my agent, I said, I'm going to go. And he said, yeah, I think you should. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said, you know, that, that I would die out there. And he said, yeah, that was five years ago when you were, you were younger. And I think you've, you've aged into it now. I think you'll do, I think you'll do better. It was a year later that we planned to go. And my wife had, my wife is a singer, actress. She did Christine and Phantom on the, Phantom of the Opera for a long time. She had been doing more and more concert work and she didn't really need to be in New York to do that she could get that work anywhere and I think she was ready for the lifestyle change she was ready mm. to, to some place where you know you could have a house and a yard and not an apartment and she was ready so I said let's yeah let's do it and, and we came out sort of temporarily we, we left everything in New York sublet our apartment came out and found a place in Studio City put a mattress on the floor and we we're like gotta give it a year gotta stick it out for a year and see how it goes and three years later we were like I, I think we're here I think we should try to look to make it permanent awesome what play did you and your wife meet in a chorus line and I am not a dancer we were doing it was a place called the harlequin dinner theater which is no longer in rockville maryland and 
they had just negotiated the rights to be the first production of A Chorus Line outside of Broadway, London, or any international tour. And and I remember we were cast, the two of us were cast to do Sky and Sarah in Guy and Dolls, and Guys and Dolls. And when they got the rights to A Chorus Line, they said, we're going to have to shelve Guys and Dolls. We're going to do A Chorus Line. And I'm like, well, what the hell am I going to do in A Chorus Line? I can't advance. And they said, you'll be the uh, choreographer, Zach. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. And then I just had to dance in the finale and the dance captain really worked with me and got me in shape just to do that but that's yeah that's where we met the rest as you say is history you dance good enough to catch her eye so that works (laughs) maybe she felt sorry for me (laughs) so correct me if i'm wrong on this andy but you did appear on angel before buffy uh no no, no, I did no. Buffy. I did Buffy first. Yeah. Gotcha. So take us through. Like, was that your typical audition? Did you get the call, or how did you land that role? Yeah, I gotta tell you, Buffy. Buffy was kind of strange because it was a thing where I got the call the night before, and you said you got to be there the next day, and then you got to hang out because they're going to make the decision on the spot. Ooh. Which does, you know that doesn't happen very often. It it happened a couple of times back in the day, but. Anyway, so I had auditioned for the show before, and now they had a different casting director. It was now Amy Britt. It was Amy McIntyre Britt. And I went in for her, and Joss Whedon was there, mm-hmm. and, and they were auditioning two roles. They were auditioning this role of Dahofren and a grandmother character. So I auditioned, they said, can you wait? And so I'm waiting, and uh, this, uh, I was talking to this older actress who was auditioning for the, uh, the grandmother character. And then more people went in, and then they would come out, and they'd say, okay, uh, so-and-so, and so-and-so, thank you so much, you can leave. And they never said my name. I was just standing there, waiting around, and we were talking. And by the end, we were the only two people left, and we were like, well, I, I guess we got the job. And then they came to me, and they said, okay, you got to go to this address. They're going to fit you with this appliance, this makeup. And I was going to work the next day. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I went to, had to drive across town to the makeup studio or the, the shop where they were doing stuff. And they had already made this. This was interesting. They had already made this, this appliance to fit someone else, but it was close enough. And they sort of adapted it to my face. Mm. They had a cow that went over my head and they had sort of adapted this to my face. And then I had to show up quite early at the doctor, the optometrist who did the lenses for them the next day before I went to work so he could fit me with the lenses for DeHoffen's eyes. Went in, did the show, and it did the episode, and Joss was great, and it was my first time working with him, and then the next thing you know, it was like every year they would call yeah. to have DeHoffen back, yeah. Well, how much information did you have for that audition? How did you approach, you know, being a Lord of Vengeance? <laughs> yeah, 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 not much, not much. You just give a little bit of a breakdown and they give you a little bit of history about, you know, he's the guy who made Anya the Vengeance demon and he controls them. And this is what he's, you know, this is really what he's doing in this scene and what's happening. And I'm like, OK, all right. So how do I approach that? All right. Let me make some decisions and. I'll make some choices and just go. And they, they liked it. And so there it is. Now, were you aware of the, the cultural phenomenon that Buffy was at the time? No, I, I wasn't. I mean, I knew of it and I had watched a few of the episodes. But yeah, I had no idea that it had the following that it did. And, but I, I, soon, I soon found out. How much time were you spending to make up for that one? Oh, long, uh, initially, the first episodes, about five hours. In the, in the, yeah, five hours in the chair to get ready, and then always about an hour and a half 
to get out. So it always made for very long days. Eventually, they got to the point where they could pre-paint the cowl that went over my head, and that really cut down. They got it down to maybe where I was like between three, three and a half hours in the chair to get ready. So that made a difference. In general, just how do you remember those sets being mood-wise? Everybody was great. The makeup crew, they were fantastic. Emma Caulfield was really nice. I only worked with Sarah the last episode, I think. But I, Allison was always great, and the cast was great, the staff. Yeah, they were all great. I mean, it was a, it was a good time. And thank goodness, because it was, being in that makeup for that long, is it's a weird sensation, because you're covered, it's hard to hear, you've got these lenses in, which make it very difficult to see, you've got teeth, which makes it, makes it you know, kind of weird. I had nails that made it almost impossible to do anything, like trying to go to the bathroom. I mean, mm. it was just like, you know, and they glue everything on. And it's just, it's a weird sensation to be in there for that long, you know, and it can get uncomfortable. So it was really nice to have a really nice working environment. So just acting wise, is it, I don't want to say easier because you just said all the reasons why, you know, the makeup was kind of difficult, but can you slip into a character a bit, a bit seamlessly when you're made up like that? Is it easier for you to see yourself in the mirror and you're this creature? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it gives you an image of like, oh yeah, I see who, I see who this guy is, you know, and it doesn't, my approach to him and I think was what was so great about Joss's world is that most of the time these guys are, it's just like having a conversation with anybody else. There are these, perhaps these hideous looking creatures, but they're just, they're just delivering dialogue, like, you know, having a conversation like anybody else. But then at certain times, they're going to turn and you're going to, maybe they're going to alter their voice or something to make it a sort of a, a heightened. That to me is what made his show so appealing. Right. I'm assuming since you, you know, you had such a great time on Buffy, that is how the angel connection happened. No need for yeah, an audition on yeah. that one. Yeah. And once again, that was just showed up. Joss was in the room for that. He didn't direct that episode, though. But yeah, it was just one of yeah. those things where they knew me from that and brought me in. Buffy, Angel, and you got nameless TV shows, The Practice, X-Files, all these major network television shows. Even if it's just one episode, do you take something from those and kind of implement them into your toolbox each time, just taking that experience from those big sets? Yeah, I think, you know, every experience experience you have affects your sort of, I don't want to say trajectory, but, you know, affects your sort of perception and the way you approach things. Yeah, I mean, there are very few times where I've had... Some of an uncomfortable situation on set and most of the times most people are you know they're they're there to do they want to create a good product and a good production and whatever for whatever reason if it's if it's the the message they want to get across or if it's just the producer thing in the bottom line we want to do a good thing to make money however it is usually they're all sort of um, there to you know help that creative process so i don't know is that does that make sense yeah yeah i'm following you yeah. Makes sense. So if you had to pick the best acting advice you've received in your career, what would it be? And who gave it to you? Mm-hmm. This is a good one. This was uh, this was when I, I was in college and I was doing a production of Romeo and Juliet. Keep in mind, I was a young man with lots of long flowing hair. <laughs> and I was playing Romeo and the, the scene when after uh, Tybalt kills Mercutio and then uh, Romeo kills Tybalt, Tybalt, he's with Friar Lawrence and he finds out that he's been banished and that he has to leave. And now you see the childish part of Romeo where he's he thinks he's never going to see Rome, uh, uh, Juliet again. And he's he bursts down into tears. And here I am, this young actor, having read Uta Hagen's book and thinking about substitution or whatever and so forth and trying to find that moment to trigger the tears. And it just wouldn't happen. And so I I wasn't going to fake it. 
So every night when we got to the scene, it would just come to a screeching halt because I was like, I, I can't, I can't cry. I can't. Anyway, I remember having a conversation with the speech teacher. Her name was Mary Lowry. She was an actress who had taken a little time off to come down and teach. And I remember talking to her about it. And she said, I'm going to tell you something and don't take this the wrong way. This is not like a sacrilege. It's not important that you believe. It's important that the audience believes. And whatever you have to do to make the audience believe, there it is. She was like, try, you know, like a, like open, try to think of like opening the back of your throat to, to trigger a yawn or something. And she said that that might trigger something for you. It might trigger some kind of sense memory, some kind of memory of a, of, of a sad event, whatever works. That was very, very important that and my job as an actor is to make my audience believe. However, however I do that, that's something that stuck with me for years. Well said. Just to back up a little bit, the English teacher that you mentioned earlier, did you ever go back to her after you had, had been successful acting or see her again? Yeah, I did. She, she Unfortunately, she passed in 88. And that was, uh, you know, well, that was 13 years after I had graduated from high school. So I was still in New York at that time and had done a fair amount of work and, and, mm. and uh, hadn't achieved the level of, of success that I would later. But yeah, I mean, she was she had a lot of students that went on and she touched a lot of people's lives. But I was able to get back and see her. Good. When you look back over your career, is there a specific role that stands out that was the most challenging, maybe one that you lost sleep over? It's a good question. I know there have been a ton Tons of challenging roles. I can't think of one. I know there have been times that I've, I've lost sleep over things. I'm probably back in the earlier days when I was singing more, when I was on stage and, and back in New York. And when I was singing more, I knew guys that could go out and party all night and do, you know. <laughs> drink and smoke and then come in the next night and just blow it out. I was not that guy. I had to baby my voice. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of times when I would be really worried about, oh boy, am I going to get be able to get this out tonight? You know, as I've gotten older, as I, as I came to LA, obviously I, I sing far, far less. That's sort of lightened the stress, so to speak. Right. I, don't, I don't miss stressing out over the voice, you know. As far as the specific role, nothing's coming to mind right now. That's good then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you nervous your first night before Broadway? Yeah, because it, I was a replacement. And there's a moment in the show, City of Angels, near the end, where the director of the... the I don't know if you know the show of City of Angels, but it's two, it's two stories, basically. There's the, there's the story that the character's writing, and then there's the real story. Mm. And they sort of take place simultaneously. So there's a scene near the end where they're actually filming the story that the, the writer has written. And the director is on a, a crane that's counter, counterbalanced. And I'm the assistant director with him. And so they have a stage hand on stage with these operating this thing. And it goes up. And when it comes down, you have to wait for the stage hand to give you the clear because he's counterbalancing. And if something hasn't happened and he doesn't get the weight right and you step off, this thing's going to shoot in the air. So they gave me a put in rehearsal, but they couldn't pay for the stage hand to be there. So I had to do this the first time on stage in my first performance. And that was a little nerve wracking. That was like, geez, I got to get this right because it's not going to really affect me, but it's going to affect the guy playing the director because he could you know, be launched in a catapult. <laughs> If this thing doesn't go right. So, yeah, that was a little nerve-wracking. Go smoothly? It did. It okay. did go. Never had any problems until there was maybe like a couple of months later. I was, you know, it was routine now. And I was getting ready to step off. And I felt this hand go on me like, don't get off yet because we haven't gotten it right. You know, that was the only time that it even came close to being something tricky. So have you seen any movies that have moved you recently? Anything that comes to mind? Yeah. 
Well, I was just talking about this. A few movies that I really enjoyed. The one that's coming to mind now is Bullet Train. I had a blast with Bullet Train. And the Red I've never seen that one. Oh, yeah. that's there. It's really tongue-in-cheek and quite funny and very violent. But the violent is is done in that sort of over-the-top way right. to be... I'm enjoying shows. I don't know if you watch The Boys. Do you watch The yeah, Boys? Yeah, I'm on season oh. one. I'm, but I'm late to the party, but I'm enjoying it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm loving that. And I just started watching Andor. And the first episode, here's a funny story. So when I was in, in uh, 1983, I was just a few years out of college, and I got a job with the American Shaw Festival in Mount Gretna, Pennsylvania. And the guy who created it was a transplanted Brit, and he was trying to model it after the Canadian Shaw Festival, which is world-renowned. So I was one of three American actors in a company of 12. All the other actors were British, most of them transplanted in New York. But the headliner was a guy named Murray Watson, and he came from London. I didn't know who he was, but he was well, well known in the UK. Tons of Western credits, a lot of British television. And one of, one of the dearest, sweetest men. I was non-union at the time, and literally I was making like $60 a week. And he was flabbergasted that there was no program in the United States like they have in the UK that would help you know, work young working actors like this. But anyway, we became pen pals. And over the years, we would write. And if he came to New York, we would get together. And then later, as I started going to London, I would get together with him. Anyway, he has two children, his uh, son, Robin, and his daughter, Emma. Emma Watson, not the Emma Watson from Harry Potter. Potter. Right. But she was an actress. And she got married and had children. And then she sort of stepped back from her acting career a little bit. And around that time... There was this young actress named Emma Watson, and British Equity came to the older uh, Emma Watson and said, there's this young actress, she would like to keep her name, would you be willing to change your name? And Emma said, sure, I'm not acting that much. So she took her married name, and her married name is Vansertart, kind of an interesting name. Anyway. My friend Murray, he passed in 2017, he was 86, but we have stayed in touch with Emma Vansertart uh, through email. And we're watching Andor, and the first episode, there's a scene where the sort of the, the new villain, I call him Dudley Do-Right. Have you seen it? I haven't. Okay. He's talking to his superior. He's like, he's law enforcement. And he's talking to his superior, and his superior is like the chief of security, and he's gung-ho. He wants to, he wants to get this guy, and the chief of security says, no, this is what you're going to do. And anyway, the scene, the chief of security, he leaves, and when he leaves the scene, both my wife and I look at each other and goes, God, that guy was good. That guy was really good. And it was like, I love that. He's like these character actors who come in and just crush it. I was like, wow, he's good. And so we go to IMDb after the episode, and we're looking up, and we say, who was the guy who played the chief security? And we're looking up, Rupert Vansatart. We're like, wait, are you kidding me? And so it's Emma's husband. Yeah. We write Emma, email Emma right immediately, say, we just saw this. And sure enough, she's like, yeah, it was him. And I know how it sort of comes full circle. But the most important thing was, I mean, God, he was so good. Just the, just the fact that it was one scene, and he has this one scene in the leaves, and both my wife and I looked at each other like this, God, that guy was good, wasn't he? I love that sort of how everything like that sort of comes full yeah. circle. That's what being a character actor gives, you know, like you may not have the biggest role, but if you, you have a chance to get on the screen, people will remember, you know, just like someone like the Hoffman, who you may have five or six episodes, and but still 30 years later, you're still deep in the Buffy fandom. People know who the Hoffman is, and it's just, right. you can make that lasting impression on someone with just a role. Right, right. Yeah, well, especially with shows like Buffy and shows that have that sort of cult following, you know, that, that really... Had an effect on people. It's it's it, you know it's. I'm grateful that I was uh, be able to uh, a part of that because it you know it did affect so many people. Yeah. Right. And that that's 
that's the point is that uh, years ago in college, uh, my costume, the, cost, the head of the costume department, required reading was a book called The Dramatic Imagination by Robert Edmund Jones. And he said it in, he listed what he believed were the essential ingredients in order to have theater. And the first two things he said you have to have are two people, an actor and an audience. Without one or the other, you don't have it. And it's right, it's about the audience. It's about what's going back to the thing about making the audience believe. And if they believe, they're going to feel, they're going to they're, they're gonna love you, hate you, or feel sorry for you, whatever. But if they believe it, that's the important thing. And that's, that's why we do it. I mean, even film and television, you can, make the, you can make the TV show, but if you don't have an audience, what's the point? It's for that audience. So that's, I'm always grateful to have had an effect on people. What's on the horizon for you, if you can tell us anything without getting in trouble? Yeah, I'm going to do, uh, well, can I say this? <laughs> There is a very popular sitcom. I can't. I guess I can't say it. It's a very popular sitcom. One of the network television shows. I'm going to have a, a day of work on that. And then, um, well, I can't say this because it hasn't aired yet. The new Perry Mason on HBO Max. They're shooting season. Well, I think they've completed season two now. I don't know when it will air. But I do. Uh, I think I'm in the second episode of that. I play a judge in that and it's really i watched the first season it's really kind of interesting and it's not anything like the original perry mason with raymond burr this thing it's it's based more on the books mm. and it it's dark <laughs> i'm gonna have to look into that because i did not even know that a new perry mason was uh yeah 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 uh perry mason it's just called perry mason on hbo max season one really really good i really enjoyed it yeah awesome. i hope season two is up to par because season one was great well, Andy, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. I'm not going to keep you all even here. I wanted to thank you for giving me some of your time. and Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, this has been fun. It's been a blast. Great. All right. You have a good night. You too. Take care. Have fun there in uh, South Carolina. All right. You too. See you in L.A. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> all right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Andy. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next week. Monsters, madness, and magic. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.